Hello and welcome to Half Stack Data Science, the show about data science in the real world. I'm David Asboth, and I'm very excited to bring you the first episode of Season 3. In this season, we talk to a host of experts about data science education. As you will have heard in the teaser episode, Sean and I are both very close to this topic and we discuss it a lot offline. So we're very excited to bring you these interviews. Sean spends a lot of his time evangelizing how companies can succeed with data science and AI in the real world. And I spend my time training the analysts of the future in the skills that they actually need. I'm also writing a book on this topic. So if you're interested in that, you can follow me on social media to find out more. And in this episode, we talked to Lisa Carpenter. Lisa is the lead data science instructor at Digital Futures with responsibility for the design and delivery of the data science program. Prior to transitioning to teaching, Lisa gained over 10 years of experience in the data industry. Lisa is passionate about empowering people through digital skills and thoroughly enjoys seeing students grow their data careers. We talked about a lot of things, including how there are lots of chefs who are currently retraining to be data scientists, why Lisa doesn't like the let me Google that for you website, and the present and future of data education. So please enjoy this episode, our interview with Lisa Carpenter. Hey, we're here with Lisa Carpenter. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. (laughs) Great. Uh, Right. So we'll start with our, our usual first question, which is what is your job title and what do you really do all day? I love the really in that. So I'm a lead data science instructor at a startup based in London. And primarily I get to teach all day. So I get to hang out with some fantastic individuals that are starting their data careers. And I just get to tell them how I feel about data. And typically I tell them everything I've done wrong in data and suggest that they be better than me. So you provide the the negative labeled examples that they should train their neural network to avoid. Exactly, because they always think like, wow, that seems like a silly mistake. Why did you do that? And they just know they're going to be better. It's quite a high um, correlation between what you do all day and your job title, which is quite unusual when we ask that question. Is that <laughs> is that by construction? Do you have a rigorous focus on that? Tell us a bit more about, I guess, the company that you work for that allows your job title to be quite close to what you said you do all day. Yeah, fantastic. So we're Digital Futures. And our mission is to bring technology training and technology opportunities to anyone that wants them, really. So our mission is really that training, which means I have that excellent opportunity to really provide um, training all day. I do do a couple of other things. So the curriculum building, that takes up quite a lot of time, making sure we've got all of that material exercises that are very time consuming to create but so valuable for the students and i'm sure you get this question a lot Uh, anyone who's ever sold anything that costs money gets this question a lot but what would you say is the differentiator or what are the differentiators of digital futures compared to all the other ways that you could learn something including by make just making a series of mistakes so all of our training is free of cost to the students um, which is a, a definite. Oh, that's a good one. answer. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> well done. Yeah. Uh, definite good on there. I think the other thing is the cohort experience and the application of the learning. So we give them projects and we've crafted them really carefully based on real business data, real scenarios, and it really allows them to 
apply what they've learned. So it's not just theory, it's not just concepts. They can actually do the thing, which is so important in the space of data. Real business data. David, where where does that live? I, I, you know, every time you look for that on the internet, when someone asks you advice on how to learn things and apply them, there's not the big business data archive No, and somewhere. that's what I was thinking. Like, what, where do you, do you have a special source of data that maybe others don't have access to? Because um, that's really the hard part. If you design a training program that tries to be realistic, you want to make the data as horrible as possible. But the, the most horrible data is not available online because it's held very closely by companies. I absolutely love definitely going into some data and just making it a bit worse, just making it a little bit dirty. Um, but I've been really lucky. We've worked with our client partners. They've provided data, which we've then synthesized and created data sets from. So not quite the live data sets that they would have given us, um, but anonymized versions, which we get to use, which is fantastic. Okay, so the, the, the students are actually learning on realistically generated data, even if it's not the real data that they would encounter, were they to go and work in that same company? Exactly. So synthesized, but all of the same patterns, all of the same distributions, everything that matters is realistic, especially, as we mentioned, the dirtiness and all of those quirks and challenges that they're going to face. Uh, do you have a bot for DBA Dave? Sorry. David, D Dave is kind of like your name, but DBA Steve, do you have a bot for DBA Steve who sort of says, no, you can't have that data or you can only have 10 rows of that data? Because, you know, just being able to get at the data sometimes is uh, still quite, quite challenging. I don't want to give away too many secrets in, uh, in case a future student listens, but there's definitely a, a couple of times that we maybe don't give them all of the information they need. We don't give them all of the data. We like to do things like not tell them the encoding and they have no way to get around that except coming back to us as stakeholders. So we definitely try to bring in a bit of that politics, a little bit of that need to really talk to everyone in an organization to, to find out about the data. Wow, so you play stakeholders. You actually, oh, absolutely. That's yeah. the most fun part. I get to role play <laughs> different characters. All of our projects have like such backstories, probably a bit too elaborate. The students probably never see just how far some of the backstories of the characters in the projects really go. What, what's their reaction to that? Like, I, I imagine the students have an idea of what the course is going to be about, what they're going to learn and how it's going to go. And what, what's their reaction to, you know, being faced with like the actual real world? I think it definitely takes them by surprise. And some of the challenges we make them face, they just had never really thought would possibly ever be there. And that's what a course like this is all about, right? Getting them experiencing new things and opening them up to that industry kind of reality that they never knew would be part of the journey. Because we all know it's so much more than just learning Python, just learning SQL. If it was just that, data science would be so easy. It's everything else that makes this such a fun industry. Yeah, I mean, we talk about this a lot, don't we? All the, the technical skills are great, but if that's all it was, like every, anyone could take a Coursera course and they'd be a data scientist in like months without without issue. And clearly Plus it would all be not... automated anyway, wouldn't it? I mean, if if it was just generating code, and running code against data, you know, computers are powerful enough now that you could probably just set some automated stuff running and job done. What do they feel like after that? Do they, you know, after they then go into the real world and do real work, do they come back in? Thank you. Because you're being quite transparent about what the real world is like upfront in a way that does, doesn't always happen. Or do they just take that in their stride and, and, and not mention that when they come and say thanks? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I think sometimes they're learning lessons that they didn't even realize they're learning. So they might not appreciate it and they might not say thanks. 
Um, I guess we wouldn't really know unless we A-B tested this and tried a more traditional teaching method on half of them and really looked at it from a data-driven perspective. Um, I think they actually end up enjoying it. So we do regular reflections from them. We get a lot of feedback from them. And they're definitely surprised by some of the things that they end up doing with us. But we get very positive feedback about the experience. And they say that they feel ready for their first jobs. So it would be interesting to know if they would still feel that way with a more traditional style of teaching. Hmm. Now, in, in my experience, there's lots of question marks at the end of a course like that of like, where do we go from here between here and a job? And so I think having them prepared and having them feel like they're prepared is, is a big deal. I mean, do, do you ever get any feedback about something they thought you were going to spend more time on or focus on that, that you then didn't? Interesting. Definitely students think we're going to do a lot more machine learning than we actually do. We only cover a couple of very basic models. It's linear regression, logistic reg regression, and a couple of classification models beyond logistic regression as well. And we make sure they really understand them, that it's not a black box, that it, it's so much more than just being able to do those three lines of Python to implement any model. And I think they believe they're gonna, you know, learn all the latest, shiniest techniques, where actually we give them a much more foundational introduction to the, the core model techniques and make sure they really understand and can explain it. So, yeah, I would say they learn a lot less than they thought they would in that aspect. And then we actually focus a lot on the professional skills as well. We have a dedicated team just for professional development, things like communication, presentations, collaboration, all of that stuff we found is so vital for success in data scientists. And you said you have a separate team that teaches those things. And what's the background of those people that teach those things to the, to the students? They come from professional services backgrounds. So they might have been consultants or similar themselves. And they've learned so many important skills from doing that. And they bring that to the classroom. We do try to keep weaving it so it's not completely separate. They're still doing presentations in a data context. But yeah, we really believe in the power of those professional skills and the ability to communicate our results and take it out to the world. And how do students find the, the difficulty of these things? What is the hardest thing generally for them to learn? Is it the technical side or is it is it the rest of it? I think it really varies on the students. I think intense is a word we get a lot. People definitely find the whole experience very intense. And whether that's intense because they're finding there's a lot of personal development they need to do, or if it's the technical side, there's definitely something they all find quite challenging in their development. And we're only doing it across 12 weeks. So it was always going to be intense. And I, I take it these students all come to, to like change careers and actually move into analytics. So they, you're not going to take have anyone who doesn't take it seriously. So I guess that, that's probably also why it's so hard, right? Because they, they have a sort of hard deadline almost to make sure they've learned everything. Um, do you ever get experiences where students like don't feel ready at the end of 12 weeks for whatever reason? Like maybe the technical things were too much. They've never done anything like it or... Yeah, absolutely. We definitely have some candidates who end up maybe deferring to the next cohort. They might have found that they're not able to get to that required standard in a short enough space of time. And that's fine. Everyone learns at their own pace. It doesn't mean they can never be a data scientist or they'll never be successful in this industry. It just means that probably that intensity wasn't quite right for them. Um, but we all know that data careers are lifelong learning. I wish you could just do it all in 12 weeks and never have to develop or learn something new again. 
Yeah, no, I mean, that, that that's my experience that students um, think that they have to have all the technical skills perfect before they can go into a job. So, I mean, the fact that you have all those professional skills and all, all the focus on real world outcomes, I think, must alleviate a lot of their concerns. Do you find, is there is there ever a difference between what the employers want from an analyst and what the analysts think that they need to provide to the employers as candidates? Definitely, I think so. And that's reflected in our curriculum. So the fact that we do the basics and the foundations and we do them really strong instead of the shiniest algorithms. I think the students will want to learn neural networks and all of that fun, deep learning. But actually what is needed is things like quality control and robust processing, clean coding and things like that. So there's always a little bit of a mismatch, especially at that junior entry level style of role. So what, what kind of background do your students come into the course? Of this is my most favorite question because they come from so many backgrounds. We say that we have zero prerequisites and some of our individuals have come from graphic design or philosophy. We've had some cooks. We've actually had multiple cooks. Seems like a very stressful industry and they decide that data is the place for them. And I actually learned so much from them, not about cooking, unfortunately, but just an entirely different perspective and a different way of seeing things. I think analytically we can get into boxes sometimes and have quite a black and white way of seeing things. And actually they've brought a new perspective, a new creativity, a new lens to things. So their variety of backgrounds has been just my favorite part of getting to work in this sort of environment. Do you have a specific example of something that was uh, interesting when you say you learn some things from cooks about data, presumably, or, or that could be applied to data. What what stands out as, as the specific benefit of um, bringing all those different kind of profiles in? I think it's in the data storytelling, which we all know is an area that is so, so important in what we do. And they managed to find some external data that they thought would augment the story very well. And they just brought a brand new spin onto things. I've actually used the same data set for around eight cohorts now. And there's maybe five groups in those cohorts. So I've technically seen the same presentation around 40 times, but every single one of those has brought a new spin, a new focus in that piece of data. So it's been so fantastic and fascinating to just see which bits they focus on and which bits they draw out from those stories. Well, I was going to ask, do the people from philosophy backgrounds ever actually do any work? <laughs> I think that could be slander for an entire industry and an entire passion there. I just feel like a lot of the time we sat around uh, philosophizing instead of, not instead of working, but as a form of working, Sean. And I, I just I just have this Im image of philosophy students getting stuck because they can see all the different paths and then not yeah. decide not to take one. Mm. It was only half joking, that question. Yeah. <laughs> But it's interesting that, yeah, from what you said about how the cooks approached it, they it does sound like on the data storytelling end of it, they they were searching for another little ingredient or a garnish or something to put on top that would precisely bring out the flavors of something. So there's something about the way they've solved problems or built products in the past that has stuck with them, uh, which is really interesting when you come to the storytelling end of of uh, of of the work where it's not about black and white truth and is it yes or no, but how do we communicate a message and some confidence around it? That's pretty can, cool. Can you tell that Sean talks for a living? <laughs> 
I just immediately was such going into the insight. <laughs> immediately going into the garnishing, and I just thought. <laughs> I just use uh, cooking metaphors too often because it's actually oh. kind of appropriate for a lot of data, data stuff. So I'm also glad that yeah, cooks are retraining into something slightly less high pressure than Hell's Kitchen. So then to, to go back to your background then, Lisa, so what, what's your particular path into data? It's interesting. So I actually studied data originally at college, and that was to get out of general studies. So general studies was a compulsory topic. Everyone had to do it. It sounded terrible. However, if you took something called Oracle Academy, you didn't have to do general studies. I didn't know what Oracle was, but decided to sign up just because it was not general studies. It turned out it was SQL entity relationship diagrams, database design, a little bit of Java, which did not stick. I forgot all of the Java immediately, but that just really ignited a passion into databases and data for me. So very unusual to develop that passion at around the age of 16, 17. I then actually studied data at university back in 2010. So I was quite driven into data quite early on. And I think that's so unusual and so rare I think a lot of people say. end up studying maths or something similar. Yeah, I don't I don't think I know many people who have come from an actual data path. Uh, what about the rest of the, the instructors? Like, What kind of profiles do you have at Digital Futures? We always try to find people with industry experience. That's so key to us, that all of our instructors aren't just teaching something they've read on a PowerPoint. They've actually lived it. I spoke earlier about how errors and mistakes are so important to me and my teaching style and that's true for all of our instructors so they've all been whatever it is that they are teaching with one exception which is one of our students who we loved so much we hired him internally and he's joined our faculty and just been absolutely incredible as well he comes from a place of real passion about maths and data so he's so much fun to work with i think that's a common pattern i think in in these kind of boot camp situations you do get a lot of alumni sticking around um, because they, they've they lived through the experience so they can provide that that kind of guidance um, that maybe the faculty can't because they haven't learned it six months ago. They learned it, you know, 10 years ago. And so it's 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 easier to forget what that was like. That's that's really interesting. I mean, you, you definitely need people who have war stories to tell, right? Um, I think that that's really important. Absolutely. And I definitely love the empathy-led teaching style as well. As you were saying, when you remember what it's like to be a beginner, when you remember the pain and the struggles and the frustration, it's such a beautiful place to teach from. So yeah, going going back in time, is there anything that you now teach or any way that you teach things today that you really wish you could sort of send back time, send back in time in a bottle? Wow, what a question. I think there's so much. My teaching has definitely evolved just from getting to know different students and their misconceptions. Every time someone asks a question, it enlightens me into their struggle and the way they're seeing things and how in the future I can build those common misconceptions into the teaching as we go along. I think looking at what we're teaching and how we're teaching now compared to the beginning, it's evolved so, so much, Um, especially where the industry itself is evolving so much. The curriculum is having to constantly update to keep with those revolutions in the industry. It might be something small like Pandas has updated its package and the latest version is a little bit different. I'd love if Pandas just stopped updating. That would be so great. SKLearn as well. That needs to just chill for a second. The dev team, the open source team has been so on it. It's wonderful, but just 
maybe they could chill. That'd be cool. Tell me about uh, it. <laughs> and I think the other part is there's always a time pressure. The, the 12 weeks go so quickly. I always wish I had the ability to just stop time, give them a little bit of extra time to really explore a topic. Sometimes we just get beautiful questions that are one step further than the curriculum really allowed for. And um, we make space once they're working with a client partner to learn those further things. But sometimes their creativity and curiosity wants to go a certain route and we just don't quite have time to give it the attention that it really deserves. Hmm. So what is your relationship with the students after they leave for their first job? I mean, what, what's the sort of offboarding process like? When I say like proud mama hen, is that a thing? That's how it really feels. You said it, so it's... Yeah. There we go, I said now. it. Uh, yeah. yeah. Proud mama hen. Um, they tend to get passed to a different team, their engagement team who really look after them. They act as their managers essentially when they're in their placements, really look after them. And what's the sort of digital futures policy on like keeping in touch with the students after they've left the sort of the, the classroom? Like the more sort of offboarding of them going into a job. I mean, do they come back for any sessions or anything like that? Or or have they just let loose with the occasional sort of getting in touch with them? Or I'm just kind of interested in the model after the classroom ends, because you obviously don't just want to cut them loose entirely, presumably. No, so they become our employees and um, the ones that we have the client placements for their employees. So they still have access to all our learning platforms and there's always a little bit of trickiness here because we don't want to force learning on them. We don't want to mandate, okay, you have to come back for a workshop on random topic, but they're obviously really immersed in their client. Okay. Turning to the topic of the moment, um, are any of them using ChatGPT to do their homework yet? And how would you know? That's a really, really interesting one. So we have a policy, of course, and our policy is that we encourage the use of generative AI and large language models as long as it's not during a timed assessment. So if it's a project and you're collaborating with others, ChatGPT can be part of your team or BARD or any of the other models. So we'd encourage the use of tools like that. My rule is that if you're using code that's been assisted, you need to be able to independently describe and explain what is going on. And as long as they have that understanding and reasonably could have replicated it, then I feel quite comfortable with that. That's assistance rather than the AI doing the work. During timed assessments, absolutely, they should not be using ChatGPT or any other assistance. Of course, it's so challenging to tell. And I think that's a challenge everyone in education is going to have. Maybe we try to come up with brand new assessments where you can use it. And I don't know, maybe the test would be harder because we know you're going to have assistance. It's a whole area at the moment. I'm not sure anyone has that answer. No, I, th I think that's really interesting because there's such a fine line between like you can't use this thing that you will probably use all the time when you're actually in your job. Like, you know, artificially creating a timed assessment scenario where you, you, you get cut off from a resource that you would otherwise probably turn to if you were in a situation in a job. But at the same time, as an educator, you have to make sure they independently know the skills and have the foundations and are not just going to be trying to Google their way through a job because they're, they become, especially for, for you, the way you're set up, they're, they're going to be your employees. You have to vouch for their skills. I think that's a very difficult line to walk. Um, how do you see your job changing in the next couple of years? 
because of this, like your role as an educator? I'm trying to be very positive about this. So I've definitely started using some educational AI tools. There's a particular one where you can feed it your educational material and it gives you back multiple choice questions, which for those of us in education, we know coming up with good multiple choice questions is so challenging. So that's been really great. And I'm trying to find ways that it can assist me to provide a better learning journey and experience. We know that it's going to change the world of work. We just don't quite know how deep that rabbit hole is, how much things are going to change. I think the best we can all do is just try to stay on top of it, listen to the market, listen to the changes and be ready for it. I definitely think that ChatGPT, other large language models, has the possibility of almost being a personalized tutor to all of the students which can only help improve things. I really hope we heap human interaction in teaching. Um, I actually really hate when people use that, let me Google that for you website and try to eliminate human connection in answering and sharing knowledge. I think when someone comes with a question or something they want to learn, it's so beautiful. And it's something that we need to really encourage and, and try to keep in the educational space. You're refreshingly less cynical than we are about the world. <laughs> what do you think is going to happen? No, I just meant the let me Google that thing for you, like you, the, you, the way you've described how you think about it. And, I, and that's right. I mean, that's that's a terrible, yeah, you're right. terrible yeah. relationship to have with a student if you're like, why didn't you just Google this thing? You're absolutely right. Like anyone who's brave enough to ask a question, even if it seems silly in the moment on face value, as an educator, you have a duty to take that at, in, in good faith, right? And um, usually there's a really useful question hiding two or three behind. So I think you're right. And it would be, it'd be a shame if education was reduced to something that could be easily turned into a, a bot. So if you're, if you're put on the spot, Lisa, like what do you think your curriculum would look like in a couple of years, assuming large language models improve at the rate they've been improving? I mean, what, what do you see yourself teaching or how do you see yourself setting up a course like this in, in a couple of years time? I think prompt engineering is definitely going to feature, of course. We're all going to need to know how to get the best out of these things. I think the DevOps and MLOps space is going to be a little bit more vital. So if we are working with these large language models, we're all going to need to know how to integrate those solutions and those outputs into our data models and into everything else. So I think some things are going to be similar. Definitely, we're still going to need that explainability and understanding of everything we're using. So maybe we're just going to be teaching our data specialists exactly how those large language models are working, what's under the hood, what are the limitations, what are the ethical concerns. Maybe we'll just really be upskilling them into really understanding what those models are doing. That might be the extent of it. Who knows? You used an interesting word there, data specialists. So precisely what are you training people to be in terms of a job title or does that not matter? And the reason for the question is really interested in what kinds of parts of the organizations your, your graduating students go, go into. Do they go into central data teams, devolved data teams, not even data teams? Do they go into yeah, marketing teams as a data person? all of the above. That is the question in the data industry, isn't it? It's such a mess. We have no definition of what a data analyst, data scientist, data engineer, all of the other job titles that have sprung up. No one knows really the definition of any of those things. 
I feel like data specialist is such a great encapsulation of really what it's all about. Um, we kind of cheat at digital futures. We generically call them all engineers and that's a nice catch all. So regardless of what you've studied, we just call you a digital futures engineer. In terms of where they go in job function, it's been so beautifully varied and so wide. Some people sit in risk functions, other people sit, as you said, in things like marketing in those different areas as well. So we're really seeing people being placed in so many different parts of an organization. We all know that data can add value in almost any part of an organization. So when you look back at how you acquired the skills that you now teach to, to others, is there anything that you acquired along the way by chance that maybe is really difficult to integrate into the curriculum as you teach it today? The things that are hard and impossible to teach. Yeah, the things that you've like you've acquired by osmosis or intuited over time, but, but are then also difficult to feed back into the loop of teaching and actually put it into a curriculum. I feel like there's a lot of things that we do as data practitioners that we can tell people and we can say it in the classroom we can let them know things like the role of working with people things like the importance of relationship building with stakeholders and it's stuff that we can all say very very easily but it's not until we're all actually doing those things and are encountering those challenges i think it's always people challenges it's rarely ever a technical challenge I think getting things done in a corporate environment is one of the key examples because you can say to students, oh, just wait until you get into a business and it'll take you a little while to get your access to a server set up. And they'll nod and smile, maybe roll their eyes, maybe make a mental note that I've had challenges in the past. But then maybe when they're in a corporate environment, they'll request it and not get it immediately and they'll be stuck in this red tape scenario of awaiting access to a simple database maybe they need many people to sign off on that access and things like that so i think all of the challenges are people and process maybe bureaucracy and it's things that we can say very easily but that actual knowledge and ability to overcome those challenges i think everyone just needs to be there and do it themselves to actually really be able to solidify that within themselves yeah no I, I totally agree i think unless you experience it you you don't really understand it it's like you can read it on paper you can get told by someone who's been in the trenches so to speak but it, until you've had it happen to you it's just not the same but i think it is really good to warn them of those things up front even if sometimes their eyes glaze over and they say oh, what is this dinosaur telling me about how things worked in the in the 2000s um, hopefully, at least for some of them, it's it's useful to have been warned in in some way. There's a lot of things that go around LinkedIn on a sort of cycle, and one of them is the periodic call for professionalization of this industry. And there are accountants, and they pass exams and and all of that stuff. And um, I think accountancy has been around for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, and so it's probably fair that they should have and they have agreed on some some standards and some professional standards and some way of certifying those things. I don't think data practitioning as we think of it today is really that old or mature, even though, you know, some of its roots are just as, just as old. What do you, what do you think, Lisa? Cause I, what, one of the things that I've noticed is that when I started learning about data science, you could only choose like a master's program at university. Now they do bachelor's degrees. So they, you know, they're training people over multiple years. So, I mean, do you, do you think there is 
a move in the industry to to standardize it in some way and say like right at some point you're gonna have to be a certified data person before you're allowed to to practice do you think there's any reality in that i think some organizations are definitely trying to create those certifications the university one can be quite a interesting space there's some amazing programs there's maybe some that are less well thought out maybe just trying to buy into the hype cycle it's so interesting though because we know the industry is so varied where would you even begin in trying to encapsulate a lot of the knowledge that we need what do we even count as part of data science or any of the other data areas i think it would solve a lot of challenges if someone could nail down this certification idea because we know that even with experienced hires companies have so much trouble trying to work out if a data scientist is good if they're going to fit in the team if they're going to perform we hear these horror stories of of 10 rounds of interviews and five take-home tests and all of these different coding challenges so finding a new job in the data space is so tricky if someone had a magic solution to that a magic way to know how much value someone would add to a team i don't know that person is going to be rich if you if you have it sean you should do it because you're going to be loaded yeah as you say that though what i'm realizing is that it would be relatively easy to standardize and professionalize the the, the more technical side of it right you either know how to work a group by or, or you don't right um Everything else that you're teaching people, though, is where there is a huge variation, even amongst data people, in whether they think that is data people's job. Uh, lots of data people sit in a product team and expect a product manager to do all that messy stakeholder stuff. And okay, that okay, well, I need to develop relationships within the product team, but beyond that, that's not my concern. Other people take a completely different approach. So I think that because it's such a hybrid role, it is not just engineering and it is not just talking to stakeholders. The half of it that could be easily standardized i think you could you could do that with a large language model it'd be everything else where i think people just don't agree on absolutely but that's why we all love data because whether you're an introvert who just wants to sit at the back office and turn out beautiful reports or you're an extrovert that wants to be in front of clients and sharing their latest models and things like that i think there's a space in data for everyone every personality type every working preference there's going to be something that you can bring out in data and just make a career that brings out your strengths and your passions so g given that and given everything that we've said as a as a final question like what is your key piece of advice for your students especially nearer to the end of the course as they're ready to embark on a career i think it's to have patience and be a little bit chill about our careers I think data is very, very exciting. There's a lot to learn. There's an overwhelming amount to learn. And there's so much hype in our industry. So, so much hype. And I think sometimes we just need to slow down and work for a year or two, maybe not in your dream role, but in a role that's going to give you that foundational learning. I think you often, by osmosis, pick up so much that you don't even realize you're learning. So you might feel, oh, I'm not learning anything at the moment, but actually um, that repetition of what you're doing is growing you far quicker and far deeper than any kind of advancements in what you're like in your job role might. So I think having that patience sometimes just taking time to really master what we're doing and get to that really good space. Um, I think that's so key to all of our careers. 
I think that's fantastic advice and especially framing it through patience. Cause I, I sometimes tell students, Oh, there's too much to learn. Don't worry about it. But that that's not as powerful as telling people to be patient. I, I really like that framing. Thank you. Um, and thank you for all your insights. Um, so before we, we let you go, where can people find you on the internet if they want to find out what you're up to? I don't know if this is okay anymore, but I'm still on Twitter. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's Lisa underscore data coach. I mostly just retweet cool things happening in the data space. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Lisa. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me.